Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome to this episode of Growth Island. So this is going to be one of those episodes where we're going to talk about how to live longer and healthier. So I actually would say live better, longer, enhancing health span for longer lifespan. That was a kind of special title, but today I got a medical doctor, Molly Malofon. She is also a teacher at Stanford at the department of the School of Medicine, where she teaches the course, live better, longer, enhancing health span for longer lifespan which is something that is pretty damn cool. That is one of the things we're going to dive in today, but she also knows a ton about psychedelics, sexual health, and many other things. So let's see which rabbit hole we end up uh, spending the most time with. Molly, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. So Molly, health, you're both teaching at Stanford. You're looking at longevity. What is health for you? You know, health to me... I was just asking myself this for years, right? Like when I first started my practice, I knew I didn't want to be a regular doctor. I was like, I want to build a practice that actually makes people healthier and doesn't just fix their sickness, but actually improves their health to a higher degree. And so for years, I asked myself, what is health? People always talk about health, but does anybody really even know what it is? Because like the healthcare system in America is basically a sickness billing industrial complex. And it's based on military medicine and it's designed to basically bill and code for disease. It doesn't really necessarily leave you healthier. It usually just leaves you not broken anymore. Now, when I was asking myself what was health, I was actually digging into a bunch of literature and really just trying to study the first principles, right? Because like in Silicon Valley, first principles are a really big part of our way of thought. And we're always trying to ask ourselves what's really underneath this way of thinking, right? What's really underneath the surface? What's the source of understanding at the most basic level of what something is? And that's typically how you can reverse engineer something is understanding its most you know basic components. So when I started studying health, it really led me further and further down a rabbit hole. And I discovered that health is about capacity. And capacity is about capacitance. And capacitance is literally, let me explain it to, to people who don't know what this means. It's a function of physics, in my opinion, right? So we have this body and we live in a world where we breathe air, we drink water, we eat food, and it goes into our system. It gets broken down into substrates. These substrates go into the mitochondria. They actually start being processed down what's called the electron transport chain, where we, we pull off these electrons and we use this energy to power a hydrogen turbine. And that turbine creates an electrochemical gradient, right? And that electrochemical gradient creates both a battery but it also creates a charge polarity between two membranes and that's capacitance. And so capacitance gives us the ability to deploy charge to do work. And battery is it's essentially electrical potential that we can store to, to do work at some point in the future. So when I basically figured out that like fundamentally what has gotten, what we've gotten wrong in our healthcare system is that we haven't been looking at the first principles. We haven't been looking at the root causes of these diseases. And although I do believe there's a plenty of genetic conditions that obviously have its roots in genetic disorders and genetic errors, the vast majority of diseases, I'd say 80% of what we see in modern medicine is preventable. 
Mm. because they're metabolic diseases. They're diseases of metabolic dysfunction. Metabolic dysfunction fundamentally begins in the gut. People eat the wrong foods at the wrong times in the wrong amounts. 60% of the child's uh, child diet in America is pr- hyper-processed foods. These foods are devoid of nutrients. Nutrients are necessary to run the mitochondrial function, right? Nutrients are really necessary to run metabolism. So people are consuming these foods filled with not only lack of nutrients, but plenty of things like vitamins, uh, like, sorry, not vitamins, plenty of things like artificial flavorings and artificial preservatives. And these things literally break metabolism. They damage fundamental metabolic health. They damage the gut. They cause lipopolysaccharide to be released into the bloodstream. They cause elevated cholesterol. They cause elevated blood sugar. And all of these symptoms are basically markers of metabolic disease. So if you look at hypertension, if you look at um, stroke, if you look at dementia, if you look at diabetes, if you look at Alzheimer's, if you look at heart disease, what do these all have in common? They all have roots in metabolic dysfunction. Not all cancers are caused by metabolic disease, but a large, about 50% of them at least are due to metabolic diseases. So what I was asking myself was like, okay, we've got 80% of diseases that are lifestyle related and preventable. Why are we not looking at our lifestyles, right? Like, why are we not looking at the fundamental of why these damage health? And so it just, I just kept on asking these questions further and further back. And so I really got to this answer of, oh, wow, it's obviously what we eat that makes a huge role in how, how healthy we are, how well we charge our, our cells with energy or our cells get damaged through what we eat. But that's not the only picture, right? In order to create more energy, our bodies need to be sent to signals. And the signal for creating more energy is movement. So fundamentally, movement sends signals to the mitochondria that there's a demand. And that demand is designed to tell the body, okay, if there's demand today, that means tomorrow there may be a harder demand, which means I need to prepare for tomorrow. Your body's a prediction machine. It's always trying to predict what's going to happen next. So in the Savannah, when we were in primitive life, we basically would have you know, been moving constantly. And that movement would have been a signal, oh, you need more energy because tomorrow might be a longer trek. Or sprinting, for example, sends the signal you may need to be able to run faster tomorrow. So our body takes these signals in and it adapts by increasing our energetic output. So we don't move our bodies and we sit at desks all day long. And this actually damages health because we actually, we reduce the capacitance that we have because our body says, well, I don't have a demand. So why would I make more energy if there's no demand? And then there's stress, right? So stress is a huge, huge topic that I can go really deep into. But fundamentally, most doctors do not understand stress, but they know that stress is like the least cause of disease. Why? Stress drains capacitance. Stress uses energy. Stress drains your energy levels. So uh, the great example of this, the most obvious example of this is when you get really emotional, right? Emotional, emotion is just energy in motion. You're just literally spending a bunch of energy by having an emotional response. So also, where do we get emotional? Positive emotions build energy, right? So like human connection and relationships is like the, is like the, literally the opposite of stress, right? Positive human relationships, positive connection. Literally, I have not figured out the actual mechanism yet. So somebody out there go help me do this research. But it seems like we are fundamentally part of a circuit, a universal circuit of life. And when we connect with other people, when we touch other people, when we touch the ground, when we actually get our energy connected to others and connected to the earth, it seems to give us energy. It seems to restore our batteries. It seems to provide us with a sense of safety. And I think it's probably through the safety mechanisms that it's what reduces the stress response. Because fundamentally, if you look at all the research, 
high quality relationships is the highest in like the like the best indicator of longevity and quality of life health and human happiness fundamentally is like hugely related to relationship quality so that's why i went into psychedelic medicine and biotechnology because i'm trying to figure out how do we engineer relationships to be healthier how do we actually use the fundamental understanding of human relationships to actually essentially create healthier ones right and a lot of people are like well sounds like you're trying to like engineer biology and these things can't be engineered and i'm like well we've engineered life to live like we used to live like 35 to 45 years old when we were like the 1900 so now we're living 85 to 95 or 75 to 85 in some cases so if we've been able to figure out how to get people to live longer then like why wouldn't we want to be able to figure out how to get people to have healthy relationships so you know i think that like there's definitely this new understanding that there's actually a, there's a place in the brain. I mean, MIT researchers discovered that there's actually a place in the brain that recognizes loneliness as a hunger signal. And it basically tells us that when we're not connected to the tribe, that we're not safe. And so loneliness is not a you know moral flaw or like an, a problem with you. There's something wrong with you by being like lonely. It's actually a symptom that you need to return to the tribe. You need to actually become more connected to others. And it's like a signal that we've lost because we now live in these societies, we're all living alone. And there's a huge movement towards co-living and cohabitation. And I'm a huge believer that like we need to be living in community. We need to be spending more time with our family and our friends because that sends us signals that we're safe. And you know, during the pandemic, I don't know about you, but it was my friends who were the most disconnected that had the hardest time with COVID. And it was when I was most dis- disconnected when I was living alone to part of COVID that I actually felt the most challenged physically. Even though I was doing everything right, like health-wise, I was eating right and I was exercising, I was sleeping properly. I wasn't, there was times where I was isolated and that isolation was hugely taxing on my nervous system. And so to me, COVID confirmed a lot of my beliefs around health and basically showed us that we absolutely must prioritize human connection, human relationships we want to thrive. And I think that's also what we see in the um, blue zone studies, like the human connection. Me? I often talk with my guests about it because sometimes you can get caught in like these biohacks of this specific thing and oh, yeah. forget the importance of actually being social with other people, right? It's the best thing. I don't want to miss my sleep. It's like, that's a good thing to take care of your sleep, but it's like, it's also good sometimes to go out and have fun with your friends. Like it's, it's not going to yeah. wreck your entire health. And I love to take the example of one of my friends that is tracking everything, right? And he figured yeah. out that his stress levels were lower when he was drinking alcohol with friends, which happens probably, you can count that on two hands, how many times that happens a year, right? But he was like, wow, yeah. I'm so stressed normally in his job, doing everything to optimize every little part from a biohacking perspective. Yeah. But drinking some booze with some friends had a really good effect on his stress levels, right? It's interesting, right? Because like, we know alcohol inhibits REM sleep, but there's evidence that Spending time with your friends. I, for example, I don't drink very much, but I was in Necker Island last week hanging out with Richard Branson and I was hanging out with a bunch of really cool people. And I was like drinking champagne and I was hanging out with all these friends. I wasn't sleeping very much. And like, I hadn't actually taken a vacation, like a real vacation that like involved me not working in many, many months. I, I mean, I've been working, this has been one of the most busiest years of my life. And I just felt so restored after that five days on an island with a bunch of random strangers who were really great people. And it was like, 
I didn't do a lot of things that I normally do. I didn't exercise every day. I didn't sleep enough. I drank a bunch. But I came out of that trip feeling so renewed and so connected and so, you know, just like grateful for my life. And I was like, wow, you need to take, I mean, I really do. I think everybody really does need to take a week vacation every quarter. And I'm talking unplug, no work, just go out and have some fun with your friends. And even I struggle with this because we're so addicted to work, right? Like we're addicted to achievement. We're addicted to performance and every, I mean, the world has gotten so competitive, but I know that there's a, there's definitely a time for trade-offs when it comes to health. And what I'm trying to explain to people is there's a bunch of different ways that you can tackle increasing your capacity, right? You can get better sleep. You can exercise more. You can eat better food. But actually spending time with your family and your friend may inhibit some of those other things, but it may be worth it occasionally because it's, it's not like you're going to be able to balance every single facet of health at all, all, all at one time. So I've been traveling a bunch, right? My gut health, is terrible right now. Like I did not realize how much travel would inhibit my gut function. So I just got my, my stool study back and I'm like, oh shit, I've got some SIBO. I've got like some methane, you know, overproduction. I should probably be fasting more. But I'm like, you know, I, my, my stress levels are pretty intense right now because I'm juggling like multiple businesses. And so I'm asking myself like, okay, so what, what am I going to do to strategize this gut dysfunction? And in, in this case, instead of going out and fasting a bunch right now, I'm going to do a little bit of fasting and I'm going to use some supplements to re- restore my gut balance. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use food and just up my fiber intake, up my phytonutrient intake. Interestingly, my gut study basically told me that my acromancia levels have skyrocketed. And one of the things that I've done in the last six months is I've started consuming lots of polyphenols. I'm talking like I have more polyphenols in my diet than the average person will ever consume. I drink roasted matcha, regular matcha, coffee. I have this company that I've been using called, what are they called? It's, it's the urothelin A company. And I can't think of the name of them. I really should remember, but it's a pomegranate extract. And even though there's some problems in my gut, there's also some things that are way improved in my gut. But I am looking at my travel schedule and asking myself, okay, you need to grab yourself for a few months. Like you need to stop being like this nomad. Like you need to get back settled because you've been traveling a lot and you need to re I need to restore the train of my gut because the train of your gut's kind of like your garden, right? Like you're like, if you have a bunch of people walking through your garden, it's going to get a little messed up, right? So you've got to retell the soil. You've got to add back the compost. You got to cut back on like, for example, compost, for example, well, you don't want to just throw a bunch of dead meat into a compost bin. That's not going to necessarily build good compost. You really want to balance it with lots and lots of vegetable matter. And then if there's an overgrowth of bacteria, the last thing you need to do is add even more probiotics. You actually need to have less less probiotics. And um, what you need to do is take some supplements that are going to basically remove some of the pathogens that are growing and kind of starve the terrain a little bit, like starve the soil so that there's a few less overgrowth of bacteria. And yet so few people understand gut health. And it's like, so it's actually pretty root principles, right? Like it's actually, it's first principles. If you have too much of something growing, then starve it. If you have two little things growing, then feed it. And, and a it, lot of my friends... Starving in Mali would, for example, be fasting. Yeah, a little bit of fasting, for example. But you can also just add antimicrobials as well. If you want to go really uh, high-tech, you can add herbal, herbal antimicrobials. You can add ozone supplements, for example. You can add... I'm just, getting, I'm just now getting into this company called Cellcore. And they're really into detoxifying agents, right? And so I'm kind of starting to experiment with 
different ingredients. So for example, fulvic acid, humic acid, what are these things? They're soil. They're basically like purified soil. You're like adding the minerals back into your gut, right? If you have a garden and you want it to grow and flourish, then you need to make sure it has proper minerals. So like supplying with proper minerals is going to actually help the mitochondria function better. And there's great research on shilajit, for example, on what it does for mitochondrial function. Like I'm super convinced that we're essentially electromagnetic bodies and, and we need to make sure that we have enough minerals to run these electro, the electron transport chain, to run these electrochemical gradients and to properly run metabolism. You have to have all your vitamins, minerals, and cofactors. So what a lot of people forget is that it's not just about the microbiome, it's about the soil itself. And does the soil have enough minerals in it? And so you have to look at things that can replace and remineral, re- remineralize the soil. And a lot of people are deficient in minerals because their food doesn't have enough of them in it. So to me, it's, okay, is, are you growing too much? Or do you have too many bacteria growing or too little? I have friends that do way too much fasting and they have no microbiome left. And I'm like, you actually need to increase food. Like you need to actually eat more often. People who, who have tons of, who have SIBO and snack all the time and eat all the time, they need to cut back on the snacking, cut back on the food intake and actually start minimizing the number of meals that they have. Cause that will actually, that will actually kill off a lot of bacteria naturally. Mm. So, and then there's things you can do. If you don't want to do fasting or mealtiming changes, you can add bacteria with probiotics and you, or you can remove bacteria with antimicrobials. And it's, it's all a spectrum, right? Like it's not rocket scientists. Like people who work on gardens know this stuff. And yet we forget that the roots of our gut are, are the roots are of a plant are on the outside. The roots of our gut are on the inside. So you just kind of have to think about life and like ask yourself, what are some parallels? And then start thinking about first principles. And for me, this all, all this stuff works really well for gut health. And gut health is just fundamental to overall health. If your gut health isn't healthy. I'm yeah. just going to cut in because time is running. And then oh, no, I, yeah. I have a lot of episodes on uh, gut health. Yeah. So uh, okay. there's, there's a few other things that I would love to touch on. I would sure. love to do uh, that we touch upon uh, psychedelics, which is something you look a lot into. But also oh, yeah. quickly, some of the tips when it comes to longevity. So I had several episodes sure. where we talk about fasting being one of the key things for longevity. Uh, yeah. Someone that talks about NAD, um, a full episode yeah. just on yeah. how you boost NAD. And uh, well, let's, sleep, let me, pulse. Yeah. What are some of the other things that you see are like key for longevity? So I think one, one really important thing that people don't understand is that your immune function is going to be, make or break your longevity. And so I'm just going to finish the final point around gut health and move on. So like your immune system is in your gut, right? And if you don't take care of your gut, you're not going to live long because you're not going to have a healthy immune system. So for example, right now, my, you know, I've got a little bit of inflammation in the gut okay. and so i need to like reduce inflammation in my body in order to optimize my immune my basic inflammation is just like your mitochondria and your immune system saying it's an alarm going off so you want to make sure that you balance your immune system properly and then you want to make sure that one of the biggest paths to doing that is actually the gut brain connection so i believe that i'm gonna it's gonna sound like a non sequitur but it's not quite a non sequitur so there's a bunch of different ways to actually balance the gut-brain connection. Like fasting actually is a great example. When you fast, you are training your vagus nerve to, to, be, to be less reactive. But women and men have different biological imperatives. And so we have to have different prescriptions for fasting. It took me a lot of learning on this before I realized that women and men are different. 
Because I used to fast a lot more than I do now. And I actually discovered that we can perturb kisspeptin pathways if we fast too much. Because men's bodies are designed to go out and hunt and gather and be able to handle high stress, high activity, high fasting, high metabolic interventions like ketosis consistently. Women's bodies, we have a, a, a responsibility to the tribe to maintain the health of children. And so what happens is we fast too much. What, what we'll do, especially if you're a woman who's premenopausal, in particular, it's a little bit different than postmenopausal, but premenopausal women are more likely to perturb their hormone balance because what the body's trying to do during fasting, if you fast too much as a female woman, if you fast too much, exercise too much, and layer too many fasting, too many stressors like ketosis, fasting, and exercise, what it does is it perturbs the gisfeptin pathway. And what that does is it downregulates gonadotropin releasing hormones. So you basically start turning down your fertility levels and you start turning down your thyroid function. And it's like a thermostat. Your body's like saying, okay, I'm going to try to make sure that you can keep the tribe alive. And I'm going to make sure you don't reproduce right now because that's hugely taxing energetically. And what I'm going to do is make sure that you can live on lower calories by turning down your metabolic rate. So I fasted way too much at one point and I ended up perturbing my thyroid function and perturbing a bunch of my, my, my different, you know, hypothetic hormones. And I was like, well, wonder why that happened. And then I realized that it was me trying to be like a man. Okay. Like I am in a different biological state as a premenopausal woman than I will be in a, as postmenopausal woman. Postmenopausal women can totally fast more. They can totally do ketosis more because their bodies resemble more like a man because they're not, they're not as hormonal. So it's, a, you have to, under, you have to understand if you're a woman, understand and respect the life stage that you're in. So if you're, if you're like, you know, zero to 25, you're in a growth state, right? Like your job is to grow. But now when you've hit midlife, like 30 and beyond, your body is to maintain growth and to reproduce like really 25 to 40. It's like that reproductive window, maybe 20 to 40, right? And your job is to maintain health and reproduce. And so when you hit past 45 or 50, when you start hitting perimenopause and menopause, your job is to maintain a healthy state of function, but not have unrestrained growth, cancer, right? You're trying to make, give your body hormetic stressors to, main, to maintain a level of health and health span that will ensure that you live long. So the problem is that a lot of women, they get into their 30, the 45 and 50, and they still eat like they're 25. So once you start hitting like 65, your metabolism starts slow, slowing down. But people just keep eating more and more and more as they get older. And so their bodies get heavier and heavier and heavier. And that really screws up metabolic health and increases your risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and dementia. So it's all about understanding your life stage and understanding that when you're 25 and you do not need to do the same thing as somebody who's 55, like you can eat more, you can exercise more, you can stress your body more. And you, and ideally you don't want to like binge drink a ton because you really don't want to use up your functional capacity. But the reality is, is that when you're young, your functional, you have 10x about functional capacities when you're old. So what I, I believe is that when younger people are going to start living longer and longer because they're figuring out this secret of life, which is you can, you need to preserve your functional capacity. You don't want to use it up and waste it. You want to like enhance it and build it and build it into your lifestyle so that you don't age as, as fast as somebody who drinks a ton, does a lot of really heavy drug use, doesn't exercise, sits at a desk all day long, eats the wrong food, eats too many processed foods. 
isolates himself, like that person's going to die young versus a person who, yeah. So fasting for women, what do you recommend? Because it's something that is very debated and that we're actually starting to get more focused on now that some women are breaking up their health by fasting all the time. Sure. So I had impressive improvements in my health when I was doing a lot of fasting, but I also had some detriments because your body can handle some short-term fast, but it really doesn't do well with a ton of excessive fasting. So if you're going to do like a prolonged fast as a woman, you probably don't need to do that more than like once every six months, I'd say. Maybe once a quarter if you're really healthy. Like a three-day fast. Okay. You know, uh, but like intermittent fasting, when you're young and healthy and fertile, you probably don't need more than 14 hours. If you're overweight and obese and sedentary, you could probably do 16 to 18 hours until you get to a normal weight. If you're postmenopausal, perimenopausal, you could probably handle doing a little bit more fasting as long as as you're not trying to get pregnant. So like 16 to 18 hours is easier for an older woman than a younger woman. Younger women, 12 to 14 hours if you're trying to have a baby, really, really track your periods, know your fertility levels, track your ovulation. If you have any problems with ovulation, then you need to ask yourself, are you insulin resistant or not? The question, because I think I want you to think about women's bodies like this. Are you overripe, PCOS, insulin resistant, too many eggs, or are you underripe, not enough ovulate, like not enough eggs produced, not enough, like literally like thinking about a woman who's too skinny, right? She's turned off her hormone cycle. She needs to actually eat more often. She needs to fast less. So like for those women, 12 hours, no more. They need to eat more often. For women who are PCOS, cut back on the carbs as much as possible. Really balance your fasting with your exercise levels. You probably should be doing it. I have friends who are PCOS. They're keto. They exercise and then they cannot fast excessively because it turns off their hormones. So you actually really need to listen to your body as a woman and learn how to know when you're ovulating or not. So get you can get over-the-counter LH strips, P- strips. You can track your ovulation. You can track your cycle. You can track your mucus. You can track your blood, your, your temperature. And you can know if you're ovulating or not. And if you're not ovulating, then you need to ask yourself, are you doing too many biohacks and you're layering too many biohacks and you're turning off your gonadotropin releasing hormones, you're turning off your LH spike, turning off your FSH properly, or maybe your FSH is too high. And now you need to ask yourself, like, like, what's your body fat percentage? Are you underweight? Are you overweight? What is your exercise level? Are you exercising too much or too little? So to me, like exercise and fasting, like if you're exercising a lot, you don't need to fast as much. I definitely do not recommend that women who fast exercise while fasting. I believe that women's bodies and men's bodies are very different. And women need to eat at least 150 150 calories and get their blood sugar up before they start to exercise because we produce a higher cortisol response to exercise than men. Men do amazingly well and they shred fat when they fast and exercise. Women's bodies, we get more cortisol, we start getting belly fat. So very, very important to respect the differences in biology and the different life stages that women and men have before you go and try to do everything a man does. Because I have talked to so many women who've done all of these things and actually hurt their health. Yeah. So when you're saying uh, women shouldn't be exercising while fasting, so does that count if a woman is like intermittent fasting, I haven't been eating for 12 hours, or like when is that window where you're saying like, now they shouldn't exercise, now they should be eating? Is that after 60? If you're going to do high intensity or weightlifting, or pretty significantly intense exercise, like you need to eat something before you go out and do that. You need to eat a little something, I'm talking 100 calories just to get your blood sugar up a little bit. 
Because what's happening, if your blood sugar is low and you're in ketosis and then you start exercising, you're like, you need calories to exercise. Now I have friends, I have certain, I, I know people, women who are like shredded, ripped and super fit. And they're like, they are constantly in ketosis. They're like super low carbers and they, they seem to do just fine with whatever, like the stressors that are on their body. But they have built their capacity into their lifestyle to the point where they've like slowly and surely built up their ability to maintain their metabolic health on a low carb diet. My personal belief is that if you are, if you've adapted completely to low carb and that's all the way that you're living all the time, you're, if, and you get pregnant, what can happen is, is that can program your child's biology to be incredibly thrifty with calories. So basically, the baby's being born into a body that essentially believes that there's calories, very few calories in the environment. So they're going to be really, really thrifty. And they actually may be, they may actually struggle with their metabolism if they grow up and eat a bunch of carbs. So you have to understand that you're programming your biology by how you eat and how you live. So what I believe is that what, that, that the healthiest way of life, this is my, my, my belief, is that you have metabolic flexibility and that you're not just programming your, your mitochondria for fat metabolism. Because I think that the healthiest metabolism is going in and out of carb and fat metabolism. So you're not just like high carb, high fat, which is the Western diet. You're like going in and out of like summer and winter phenotypical, phenotypical diet. You're going, I go in and out of ketosis. I go in and out of higher carb and lower carb eating. And by the way, higher carb for me is like 100 to 150 grams of carbs. Low carb is like 50 to, you know, 40 to 80, you know, I'd say. So like I definitely shift in a smaller window of carbohydrate intake than the average person. But generally speaking, I think that consistent low carb eating may be great for certain athletes and certain people, but definitely for the average person, you want to have a healthy metabolic flexibility. When you eat really, really low carb, what it does is it lowers your insulin output and you actually trains your pancreas to start producing less insulin. So when you do eat higher carb, it spikes your insulin. And spikes your, and not, sorry, it doesn't spike your insulin, it spikes your blood sugar because you're not producing as much insulin. That makes sense? So basically what you want to do is you want to have a healthy functioning pancreas and you don't want to break your metabolism by eating high carb, high fat all the time and getting diabetes, but you don't want to train your metabolism to only adapt to low carb eating because then when you do eat carbs, you actually get this massive blood sugar spike. So to me, this is like the real challenge and this is what we're trying to figure out is metabolic flex flexibility. Got it. All right, jumping quickly into both psychedelics. And if you just had to give some quick advice for other things to like for longevity, we might not go in depth with them, but just like oh, yeah. top three things. First and foremost, the relationship that you have with others is largely dependent on the relationship you have with yourself and the relationship you have with your parents. So your attachment style is largely due to how you were raised by your parents. So a lot of people have attachment trauma and they've never dug into why and they've never figured out what's wrong, like what happened in their childhood, how they, like what happened with their parents and what's their core wound, right? And so because of that, a lot of people are kind of just flying blind in life, wandering through life, going into in and out of relationships and wondering like, and kind of blaming other people for when the relationships fail. When fundamentally the true key to having optimal health is taking ultimate responsibility for your life and working through your trauma so that you don't traumatize other people, including your children. And so I'm just a big believer that psychedelics can help you work on 
your what's called parts work. It helps you work through the attachment traumas, the inner child work that you need to get under the surface of why you have certain triggers that in, influence the way you work with others in your relationships. So it's a, it's obviously not something that you just do overnight through one trip. But what I have found is that a lot of people struggle with eating healthy. They struggle with exercising consistently. They struggle with meeting their goals. And a lot of why they struggle is because there's actually subconscious programming in their back of their mind that hasn't been addressed. And so it's kind of like your unconscious and subconscious is running the show. And you think that your frontal lobe is in charge, but actually it's your primitive, you know, sort of, it's like your sort of primitive programming of, am, am I actually feeling safe in the world or not? And did I grow up feeling safe? Did I grow up feeling loved or not? And that programming is so, so core to being healthy and human that if we don't understand how that happens and how that programming is, is accomplished, then what, what would happen, what happens is we grow up and we don't, we don't, we wonder why we can't right, make the right decisions in the moment. And it's because essentially the amygdala gets turned on when we experience situations that induce us and make us feel like we're, we're not safe or we, we're afraid. And we don't really understand why. And so we just kind of fly blind. So I think that psychedelics can help you really do a bunch of really effective sub subconscious reprogramming. I think it can help you get under the surface of what your triggers are. I think it can help you get under the surface of why you make bad decisions. Why do you have conditioning around unhealthy eating? Where did you learn that conditioning? You learned it through your family. You learned it through your relationships. You learned it through your upbringing. And for me, I have experienced dramatic shifts in my health when I finally was able to get under the surface of some of my core wounds and core trauma. And it's my eating behavior shifted almost effortlessly when I finally healed some of my traumas in my life. And I was like, well, shit, like how many people have eating disorders? How many women have eating disorders? How many men have problems with obesity and overweight? How many men have problems with self-esteem and self-image? And if it was easy to change our self-image and our self-esteem by just our thoughts, everybody would do it, right? Like we would just think that we're great and then boom, we'd be awesome. But instead, it takes a lot of work and effort to get under the surface. So there's, you don't have to just do psychedelics. You can do hypnotherapy. You can do, um, there's plenty of forms of therapy that can drop you into a state of like deep, calm where you can work on that level it doesn't meditation is another great example of, of work that you can do on your subconscious but i just believe that like talk therapy is a conscious therapy and it doesn't always get under the surface and a lot of people for that the reason why it doesn't work is because they don't really fully trust their therapist that they can really get like really show their vulnerabilities and so what's nice about psychedelic medicine including things like mdma is it enables you to enter a state of feeling less fear around dealing with your vulnerabilities. So you can process those vulnerabilities from a state of feeling safe and feeling good, frankly. So, you know, we're, a lot of research is going into ketamine for depression and anxiety and chronic pain, which we know a lot of chronic pain is due to emotional pain. And then we know that MDMA is being studied for PTSD and for trauma and for alcoholism. We know that psilocybin is being studied for depression treatment resistant depression end of life anxiety and grief so there's just a booming industry of psychedelics around the world because a lot of these problems we don't get solutions for and i'm personally trying to tackle through my company adama bioscience we're technically in stealth right now but if you're an investor feel free to contact me molly at adamabioscience.com i'm going to be tackling health span through psychedelic assisted therapy 
So I am looking at the core human drives of health and survival, which is how we eat. And, you know, how we eat is how we survive. And then how we reduce our sexual health is a big part of our human, you know, existence. So this is what my company is going to be about and what I'm going to commit to the next 10 to 20 years of my life to. Fantastic. Psych- yeah. Psychedelics is extremely interesting. I had uh, Dr. David Feiflon, medical doctor, PhD. He's been a, yeah, a professor at uh, USC for, I think, more than 10 years and so. And he also went into how ketamine is showing amazing results for depression. And But how the problem yeah. is that it's now a generic drug. So I think it was Johnson Johnson that made a nosal spray, as he explained, that are helpful, but it's not as helpful as the generic drugs that you could actually help treat people. I mean, yeah. Well, the great thing about it, though, is that the generic drug is cheap. And so doctors can prescribe it. And there's an entire industry of companies that are making it easier for doctors to prescribe this medicine to different companies, like different different practices. So, so just going into like psychedelics, not everyone knows what is psychedelics. Some people think, is it mushrooms? Is it like things? Sure. Like- well, let me explain this to you. Yeah. So psychedelics, fundamentally, to be a psychedelic, you need to have some action on 5-HT2A and C receptors, which means you have to have an effect on this specific tryptamine pathway that can enable things like neuroplasticity, which can help heal different, you know, sources of mental, mental But there's a whole variety of psychedelics. There's hallucinogenic psychedelics that can actually make you trip, make you have an altered state of consciousness. And then there's psychedelics like MDMA, which don't really necessarily make you trip, but they do alter your consciousness and they change the way that you feel so that you can do things that you couldn't normally do have a deep sense of you know connection and empathy to others that maybe you don't always feel i think what it really does is it unlocks the once you've uh, sort of unlocked these different doors of perception with different psychedelics it's easier for you to get back to those places without having to take the drugs and at the same time certain psychedelics like ketamine are disassociative and they can remove you from your conscious existence and make you realize that you are not your feelings you are not your thoughts Like you are just a, you know, a person who's a, who's basically connected to this like total state of awareness and that thoughts are just things that drop into your awareness, but they are not who you identify with. And psychedelics can do all sorts of amazing things. And I've been studying that since my early 20s, since I worked at a library in college that had an entire section of books on psychedelics. And I checked out the entire section and I read the whole thing. And I was fascinated by them. And I never really knew that my life would lead me to this point. But I knew that I had a, you know, a very weirdly obsessive interest in them for a long time. And I didn't use a lot of them, even when I was edu- I was like even learning about that. I was like super interested in them. But it's funny that now my career has shifted towards this space because I basically think that if we know that lifestyle and behavior is the leading source of disease, And we know that conscious thought cannot necessarily fix everyone's lifestyles or behaviors, then we have to ask ourselves, what else can we do and why? And we have to keep on asking ourselves that so we can figure out how to reprogram our conscious behaviors through digging into our unconscious and subconscious programming. Okay. What are the dangers of psychedelics? If you have a family history of psychosis or bipolar disorder or, you know, specifically different types of mental health conditions, they can you know, they can basically transform your consciousness in a way that maybe make it difficult for you to return back to normal conscious awareness. So you have to be exquisitely careful with experimentation because they're not a panacea. They can definitely harm people, especially if you take too much. 
And most people accidentally take too much and can end up getting harmed or hurt. And as a result, end up with mental health dysfunction. And we don't want that. So how do you ensure, because this is still a new field, new field, this yeah. funding that has went into it the last 50 years of uh, testing about people. And now there's luckily more research being done to test, like, how do you use it in a safe way? But so like, how do you ensure that you actually do it in, in a way that expands your life and not uh, make you? Well, you first and foremost, start low and go slow and titrate up. One of the biggest problems with psychedelics today that even I've experienced is that a lot of the stuff that you're purchasing or, or people are giving you or even doctors might be prescribing, for example, even ketamine. For example, I have found clinically there is a massive difference in the bioavailability of compound ketamine. It can be 15 to 45% difference in bioavailability. That is not okay. This is why we need FDA-approved drugs. This is why we need drugs approved by the European uh, authorities because the consistency is not, it's just not good. And until we have, you know, basically we need to actually study and approve these drugs so that we can make sure that people get quality and consistent experiences and dosing because fundamentally that's how we lead your safety. And, you know, psilocybin on the street now from these different purveyors, just like what happened in, in marijuana, you know, it went from being like pretty consistent, you know, high as people were getting from marijuana purveyors to like hyper potent strain. So that now people are getting incredibly high from the same amount of marijuana they used to take. Same thing's happening with psilocybin mushrooms are being bred to be more and more potent. So like literally a capsule of, of psilocybin mushrooms powder could like, up the, you know, like a 300 milligram capsule could be the potency of a, of a gram. So that's 3x the potency, right? And so we don't have consistency. And that problem makes it really hard to properly dose. And so you could end up way more high than you intended to get. What's the state around the world in regards to finding doctors that can help you with the right dose and actually monitor it as well so you, so you don't end up like... So someone is just sitting and thinking, like, oh, I, I need to try these uh, psychedelics. Where can I find it on, on the market outside of the normal system? Yeah. And then they test something and they actually end up getting in a worse condition. I mean, the first step is like, there's a bunch of retreat centers all over the world that do a great job at, at guiding experiences. There's a bunch of different websites that you can go to, like Third Wave has a directory, psychedelic.support has a directory, and there's these directories you can find practitioners through. But then there's the American Society of Ketamine Physicians. So if you're looking for a ketamine doctor, you can find a doctor through your through this network. But the key is, is finding it through a reputable network, preferably talking to the person. And you should really do your homework on people that you sit with. Like You should trust your shaman like you would your neurosurgeon. Got it. And in that field, it's even more important to do the research where someone that's a surgeon, they've definitely been through educations and to get yeah. to that point, it takes a lot of point. That's I yeah. guess, also one of the challenges where we're in a time, probably in the next 10, 20 years, where there's going to be more research done and it's more like the Wild West. And then after that, we'll probably have more certified doctors and that you have places where you really know the dosing and, and how to actually run these protocols. Yep, exactly. But it's a fascinating time. Do you think Thank it's going to be mainstream in the next, when do you think it's going to be mainstream around the world and accepted in the different healthcare systems? 
Oh, it depends on the country, right? Like Saudi Arabia, probably 30 years. America, probably five. So, you know, five to 10. But that's why I'm involved with it now because it's very early and it's exciting to be a part of something that's so, so, you know, the doors are, are opening for us to work on this. So I'm excited. I'm really stoked about that. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Molly, time is uh, running. I would love to talk to you for 10 more hours. You also have the long uh, Stanford course that I would love to get all the information from. But uh, yeah. I'm respectful of your time as well. Where can people find out more about you? Follow me on Instagram at D-R-M-O-L-L-Y dot. Actually, I think it's, I think I changed it recently. At Dr. Molly dot dot dot. It used to be drmolly.co. Search me just Molly Maloof, M-O-L-L-Y-M-A-L-O-O-F. And then and my my website is at drmolly.co. And sorry, it's www.drmolly.co. You can sign up for my email list. LinkedIn, Molly Maloof MD, Twitter, Molly Maloof MD. And then email, you know, Molly at adamobioscience.com or M-M-A-L-O-O-F at stanford.edu. Great. I'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes, also your Instagram. Last thing before we round off, if you had to give yourself an advice to your 10-year younger version of yourself, what would you tell yourself? Ooh. 10-year younger version of myself. I mean, it's honestly, I think it would have been, you don't need to wait your entire life to learn to love yourself you know if you can love yourself now you don't have to wait till you're perfect or you feel like you've reached some sort of achievement or perfection like you can love yourself right now in this moment and i think so many young women are so critical of themselves especially when they're in their 20s and i was like you know look i'm 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 attractive now but i was really hot when i was 27 and i still oh, no, you're so not. critical i'm 37 Wow. You still yeah. look like you're 27. So Yeah. Well, it's because I optimize health for a living. So I shouldn't look like I'm 27, right? I mean, I don't look like I'm 27. It's because I'm doing something wrong. But yeah, when I was 27, I mean, I was like, I actually wasn't as healthy as I am now. I was actually like, I would skip meals, starve myself. I took Adderall. I mean, I was so different. I mean, I, it was my beginning of my journey of becoming a health optimization doctor. And I was miserable in my residency. I hated my life. And a lot of it stemmed from just, I didn't love myself and I just really felt like I had something to prove. And I think that like young women need to be told that like, you don't have to wait till you think you're perfect before you can love who you are and love your body. Like you're beautiful right now. And a lot of women just need to be told that, that, it's, that they're allowed to love themselves. And I think that there's just this massive poverty of self-love and it makes it really hard for people to love others. And so I think like love is the most powerful, potent human emotion that exists. My company, Adamo Bioscience, means to fall in love in Latin. So I'm really on a mission to help understand the science of love, self-love, and loving others. That's something because I believe that love is a massive tool for survival and for longevity. So I think we should understand the science of it. So yeah, that's where I'm at now. Beautiful. I think that's a, a perfect end. Molly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Interesting. So Molly, what would your advice be in 10 years? Well, yourself now, what do you think? Oh my God. 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and say, 
you made the right decision to go after this company and it was all worth it. So actually just enjoying the process. And I mean, my tenure, 10 years from now, I will have a family. I'll be an investor. I will be working with founders. I will be working with founders for the rest of my life. Like, I believe that fundamentally desire is the engine of creation and we need more people who deeply desire a better world and are willing to go spend their lives pursuing it. And honestly, I just get chills when I think about how much purpose lights me up and gives me a, a reason to jump out of bed every morning. And I really want everybody to have that feeling because I think that whether you join a company that has a really amazing mission or you start a company because you are on a mission, we need entrepreneurs because we need more companies to change the world. The world changes when people decide they want it to be a different place and they go after solutions that can ideally help millions of people live better lives. So I surround myself with people who are game changers, who teach me how to think differently and, and show me that anything is possible. And I want to be in 10 years time, someone that people look up to and say, Dr. Molly was my role model. And she inspired me to start a company. She inspired me to become a doctor. She inspired me to pursue my dreams because she did it herself. And she showed me it was possible. Like I have been following so many people who have inspired me that I can do more and it taught me that I can do more. And now I am doing more. And it takes a deep belief in yourself to be able to have the courage to go after what you want. And so I want to show women in particular that they can go after what they want and they can do it. Fantastic. I look forward to following the journey. Thank you. Let me know if there's anything else that I can help you with along the journey. I'll be happy to uh, help promote the different things you're doing as well. Thank you so much. Enjoy the day, Molly. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share it with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.